Welcome to Our Work and Why We Do It, an audio series from Forbes Library in Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm Art Middleton, the writer-in-residence at Forbes Library, and this program grew out of the reading series I've had the opportunity to host there since 2018. As lockdown changed the horizon of what was possible in public spaces, I took a step back from the series to try and think about what I desired in readings and events like these, in the absence of being in a room with others. I went to virtual events, ones I wouldn't have otherwise had a chance to go to in California and Seattle, teach-ins in Minneapolis, lectures in New York, all while nursing a mug of tea, headphones on, a notebook beside me. That's a medium I can get lost in, and one that ultimately leaves me longing for those moments of distraction, commiseration, gossip, noise, sudden quiet that make readings feel like something that can change the temperature of a night. And I miss the library. I miss the library. Mornings spent there typing out notes for an event, running into loved ones, moving among the stacks, the light through the windows, the sound, the shelter of the space, and its harbor for different experiences of time, work, rest, respite, leisure, play, So I started making this audio series because I hope for something that could make a kind of company through those changing parts of the day, brief but there, and that rather than leave me with more yearning in a year with uneven amounts of it, put me in conversations and an audience to local writers and artists and give me some of that sense of that possibility back. I met our first guest, Susan Stinson, through our work at the library. Susan was a former writer-in-residence here and helped create and sustain the Writer's Room, a weekly space for writers to meet, write, and share their efforts. Susan is a writer, a historian, a maker of precise and charged, visceral sentences, and a champion for community here in Northampton. Susan's novel, Martha Moody, was reissued late last year by the beloved Small Beer Press. The novel is full and rich, and as you'll hear in the interview, churning. Set as the West and America is being settled, our protagonist, Amanda Linger, lives a life of restraint alongside her brooding husband and beatific cow, Miss Alice. Without naming herself as such, Amanda is a writer, and her hidden pages are a place where her desires dream inspired by strange moments of intimacy in the Bible, like Mary cleaning Jesus' feet with her hair, and her love of the proprietor of the general store, Martha Moody. In Amanda's stories, Martha becomes a transcendent character, mythic in proportion while grounded in the reality of life at the time. The novel itself is a container for stories, both invented, elusive, and historical, mainly in the figure of the infamous teetotaler Carrie Nations, whose presence in the town forces a change in Amanda's life, bringing her out of the stories of Martha and toward the reality of her, which at the end of the novel, she describes this way. Her presence echoed in everything I wrote, but I never caught her in all her complexity. I wrote in every language the land spoke to me, which was mostly motion, smells, and lines of light. Our conversation also just glances at the complexities here in a novel where isolation is breached by longing, 
and repair isn't simply a fantasy. Susan and I spoke in the second week of the new year. The Georgia election had just passed, as had the attack at the Capitol, and these find their way into the conversation as they should. We recorded this over Zoom, and you can hear, despite the clean promise of digital, pages turning, background noise, analog, daily life, pressing in. All right. Well, hi, Susan. I'm so glad we could make this work. Uh, and thank you. For hi, Art. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for talking with me today. Um, so Susan is the author of five books, the novels Spider in a Tree, Venus of Chalk, Fat Girl Dances with Rocks, and a chapbook of poems and lyric essays, Belly Songs and Celebration of Fat Women, and the subject of our conversation today, Martha Moody. It was first published in 1995 by Spinster's Inc. and has now been reissued 25 years later by the inimitable Small Beer Press based in East Hampton. Um, I hoped we might start this conversation by hearing you read a section from the novel, uh, if you're up for it. Sure, I'll be happy to. Um, I, I decided to start with the beginning, um, the, the opening section from Martha Moody. And because it's the beginning, I don't think you need to know anything else about it. I'll just start. I was crouched next to the creek, baiting my hook with a hunk of fat when I heard a rustling on the bank upstream. I turned my head and saw Martha Moody looking into the water. She was a heavy woman bound up with dry and perishable goods, the owner of Moody's general store. Her red hair was pulled into a bun and she wore a black dress with jet buttons that reflected light. I was embarrassed to be caught fishing on Sunday with mud in my skirt, so I hid behind a cottonwood. Martha leaned over and laced her shoes and rolled down her stockings. I watched as she tucked them beneath the root of a tree, then bunched her skirt up in one hand and stepped into the water. Dirt trickled into my collar from the bank, but I stood still. I could see the white blurs of her feet as she waded towards me. She moved with calm propriety, a large 
plain, respectable woman from the respectable woman from the nape of her neck down to her knees. She dropped her skirt. It floated and plastered itself to her shins, a changed, molded thing. Martha moved more slowly as her skirt got soaked, but she was not ponderous the way she was behind the counter at the store. When Martha said, don't lean on the glass, even the sheriff jumped back. Now she kicked at her hymn, splashing herself a little and nearly slipped on a rock. She stopped within breathing distance of me at a spot where the water took a fall, a drop over rocks. Fish hid in the deep place behind the falling water and I had been luring them onto my hook. Martha tucked a strand of her hair behind her ear, squatted down and went over face first. I put my mouth against the tree bark to keep from calling out as she passed me covered with white foam and scraping sand. She came up spitting and laughing and grabbed the bank to hold herself under the falls. I heard her say, frowsy, then laugh more. She sat in the stream bed with the water rushing down, rushing over her. The sky was blue against the hard edge of the bank. I opened my creel, seized a fish and threw it back into the water. It skidded past her. She turned her face and another one slapped her neck then washed on past. She got on her knees, sinking in the soft bottom, and fish after fish swam past her, big silver, small brown. Martha stood. I stepped into an open spot on the bank so she could see me reaching into the creel and tossing another fish into the water with a high arc. I straightened the bow at the waist of my old calico, then tilted the creel towards Martha to show her that it was empty, except for a few wet rushes on the bottom. She stared at me, dripping water, as silver flashed over her feet. Mrs. Linger, why are you throwing fish? Her tone was cool. I felt like a kid caught with a pocket full of lemon drops I hadn't paid for. I walked down to the bank to her, wiping my hands on my skirt. I couldn't think of a good lie. The truth was, I wanted to add those shining bits of life to the picture Martha Moody was making with the water. I knew when a moment was ripe, which was how I came to be fishing when most decent women were getting supper on the table. Why are you in the creek? Martha touched her glistening buttons for the poetry of the moment. I nodded and reached to help her onto the bank. She grabbed my fingers so hard that I thought she was gonna pull me into the water with her, but she just held on and dug her feet deeper into the mud. I'm not ready to get out, Amanda Linger. Are you coming in? I pulled my hand away and stuck it in my dry pocket. I never rose to a dare. Martha stood there like she was a tree that had been bending the water around her since before Jesus walked in his own thunder and waves. I could see the outline of her corset through the fabric of her dress. I picked up my fishing pole. I have to get to my milking. Martha pulled one foot loose from the mud and held it under the fall to rinse it. 
I could smell the wet fabric of her skirt. Her hair was still knotted away from her face. Milk, yes. Her chin was soft and white. Good day then, Mrs. Linger. I climbed the bank inspired. Good day. Thank you so much. I feel like remembering that opening scene, it contains so much of um, the kind of transcendent joy of, of witnessing this character that Amanda ends up telling stories about um, that, and how the quality of her attention um, before she even tells stories uh, ends up kind of fluorescing into the fantastic just in real time. It's, it's uh, such a lovely moment. Um, I wonder if you could share a bit um, about the culture in which Martha Moody first arrived in publishing, but also in community. Um, the names you acknowledge uh, in each book, uh, like the Valley Lesbian Writers Group and consistent names of friends and fellow writers reveal this tangible thread of connections that nurtured your work. Um, and I wonder about what the reception and passage was like for this novel, um, this slipstream book that straddles history and the kind of writing about sex and intimacy that was finding a bigger audience at the time. Yeah, right. I mean, there's a lot to say about that because I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna back away from the question and back, back into it for a second, if that's okay with you, because I'm, there's something I meant to say about that reading, which is, um, you know, so when I'm reading it today, as opposed to 25 years ago, you know, what I'm thinking about today when I, when I looked at that passage was um, the work of all the, the, the organizers in Georgia, especially the women, especially the black women and the other women of color who just like against incredible odds, like, Changed, shifted a piece of political tide that no one thought was even possible. And the fact, so that kind of attention that you just mentioned, you know, that kind of attention to women's lives and women's concerns and women's relationships is this sort of incredibly undersung like force in the world. And that, that um, you know, that's what I'm kind of drawing on as I try to figure out what to do next now in January 2021. And it's absolutely the context in which um, the book was originally written and published. So, right. I mean, I was a lesbian feminist and I don't always use that language now because um, there's strands of that thinking that have, has, um, become as, uh, associated with being um, trans-hating. And I think that that's, um, I think that's, that's a tragedy, really. I, I, I personally experienced that as a tragedy because there was so much liberatory, like world-changing sex, positive and wild and radical and risky work happening in those cultures, you know, um, that it's just, um, to be to have it shut down around, um, you know, defining other people's lives for them is just, um, yeah, that breaks my heart. But 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 so there were um, feminist and or lesbian networks of bookstores, and publishers, um, 
magazines and journals. There was a feminist bookstore news, which was um, uh, edited um, and published by a woman named Carol CJ, who I saw everywhere I went when I read with these books. And I saw somebody say once that she woke up in the morning and thought, what can I do today to help feminist bookstores? And so if you were part of that, like small circuit, I mean, you just kind of knew that the mainstream press was never going to publish cover your, the, your, your work like other like straight people wouldn't know about it but there were um like vibrant communities of of lesbians and and bisexual people queer people you know just uh, often i was in a lesbian context like people who were who were eager and hungry for this work and everybody showed up you didn't have the internet so if you i mean women who just wanted to like maybe meet somebody else who would be a potential, like someone they could go on a date with. I mean, you went to the readings. So if they were they were very full and active. And the Valley Lesbian Writers Group is a, is a group that ran for a long time. I was in it for like nine years in the Valley. And Leslie Newman and Sally Bellrose, who we were exchanging interviews of each other at, at um, Lambda Literary, where we, we're still um, running companions. and. Um, just many other um, really wonderful writers um, were part of those communities. And if you were part of them, um, I mean, Alison Bechtel um, yesterday posted a picture of her with a brand new copy of the 25 years later, Martha Moody, right? You, you, you know, you knew each other and, and those loyalties sort of are still active. Um, even when, I mean, she has become it phenomenally successful and I have not you know but they're still there right <laughs> I thank you so much for that too. and I, I think um what you're referencing regarding um uh the work that went into in particular in Georgia uh over these last handful of months uh in the runoff to the um uh, the secondary elections um this book Martha Moody the men plays such a secondary role. And it feels that for Amanda, for Martha, um, for Clara, um, the work of, of life, um, thriving of sustenance, um, of, of tenderness and care, um, it is a women's world. Um, uh, the reverend, uh, the sheriff, they have, um, they have a presence that impedes upon what feels like a world that naturally figures out how to depend upon one another in such a beautiful way. Um, I, I, you know, at one moment um, in the book, Amanda is thinking about the stories she's writing about Martha, uh, her compulsion to write them and what her desires were for seeing them outside of herself. And she writes that they were quote, part truth, part code, part wish. Uh, end quote. Um, I feel like that that's that moment um, in the novel and thinking about the stories and who her audience was and what she wanted out of writing them spoke to that moment um, that you're describing for me, right? Um, the, the culture that that was nurturing um, this rich literary um, uh, difference at the time. Um, and I, I want to pivot and just say, yeah, we're recording this less than a week after the attack on the Capitol. And that, of course, has shaped how I ended up rereading parts of the novel, in particular, the early moment 
when there's a riot at the saloon uh, led by the temperance activist Carrie Nations, um, we see the power that Carrie Nations has over the crowd that storms the saloon, um, both the rhetorical power as well as the symbolic power with this hatchet that she carries. Um, and we also get to see the way that Amanda turns away from the action and flees, um, but struggles with that choice. Um, could you talk a bit about what drew you to Carrie Nations as a figure, um, perhaps the writing of that scene? Yeah, right. Um, so I, I gave a reading um, the day after Trump's um, failed coup attempt. And we know that those efforts aren't over. And I read that scene um, because I started thinking, I woke up in the, in the middle of the night thinking, okay, no, I wanna talk about this. And one of the things that going back to that scene helped me see is, um, I mean, Carrie Nation was an actual historical figure, just to be clear. She, she, um, she led groups, uh, she was a, 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 a radical um, member of the temperance movement and she led um, groups of women um, throughout um, Kansas and, and sort of the surrounding areas, like doing just what I describe in the books, smashing up saloons with hatchets. And um, so that's very different in context than what happened in the Capitol, but, but, and scale. But it's like this moment of, um, of violence and, and what it's, um, you know, called forth by somebody who makes a living provoking it, you know, which was true of Carrie Nation as it is for Donald Trump. And, um, and also about an experience of walking away and not unchanged and not pure, you know, from such a moment. And one of the things I saw when I, when I was rereading it was, I remember this so clearly. I mean, it, Clara is her best friend. She like throws herself into it, like Theodore Bear is very lead, a leading person of town and she's really doing it. And so there's that moment of, even if you are experiencing hesitation of joining the, this mob violence, you, it's, it's, it's that much harder if you think this is my community. These are the, my friends who I love you know, that the influence of just, you know, the ordinary person beside you making the decision to pick up a hatchet, you know, and is, is very hard to walk away from. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there, this is one of two kind of um, moments in the book where we have a group of people wild, you know, um, later on, it's um, when Amanda, uh, runs out of the hall uh, where she's been uh, outed as the author of the Martha myths. Um, and that one is such a different vision, right? It's, it's what first feels as she's being pursued like an echo of that earlier, um, the, the threat of mob violence ends up becoming something again, like transcend. we're back at the creek um, and we're with children um, and there's again the joy of bodies being together, and so I wonder. Yeah, I, I think reading reading the book and reading those moments again, I was thinking about how um, sensitive uh, our language is for 
the joy of togetherness and the threat of togetherness when being led by these dynamic figures um, and, and what kinds of, uh, I guess, what kinds of results come out of that. Um, Can I say something else about that, Art? Please. Because I think, I mean, one of the things uh, for me, I, w- I was quite young when I, um, when I came out and I, and, and I did it in this, again, this, this cultural context where, you know, we wanted to change the world. We wanted to really transform the world. And we, to, to even try to write about lesbian lives, about, about fat, you know, it, I, it was, it, I hadn't, I didn't even have language for it. I had, I was so, and, and I, but I did have community. And one of the, one of the thing, one of the things I learned at that time that I, that holds up when I go back to it is those charismatic figures, like very powerful. You can learn a lot from leaders, but really the power is in the community and each person's role within it. And like going back to a grounding about that, that involves being in relationship with other people and not, um, not, not denying or trying to suppress like talents and strengths and skills, but also not creating hierarchies around them that, that lead to extreme imbalances of power. Um, Cause that can happen on a small scale too. And especially if you're trying to break everything down, then like, I mean, I draw a lot on old traditions, like the Bible is in there, right? Cause right. that's what I know. And that's what I was raised with, you know? So, but that, yeah, I, I get, I, I, the, 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 so one of the things that, that Martha Moody is about for me is a sort of that moment of incredible excitement and, and possibility and, and thrill of being able to see this this other fat woman, she's like a goddess, you know? I mean, flying on, and the cow too, it's like radiant and and erotic and, mm. and transforming. And then to be able to move towards and through that into um, something that incorporates all those new freedoms and possibilities and grounded in everyday life, you know, where nobody has to be a goddess. We're all people together trying to work for the common good. Yeah, it's beautifully said. And I feel like um, this is something that I love about the novel is that it offers this vision of happiness that isn't simple bliss, but a, but a working happiness, right? It offers us, us the chance to see images of repair, both interpersonally, but most importantly in community um, through interdependence and the way that the women um, depend on one another, especially as um, uh, Amanda and Martha um, kind of leave uh, and what their lives are, what their subsistence is um, once they leave Moody. Um, it allows pleasure as well to be a part of those visions, which is, I think, something that can often be lost when we focus on the work of interdependence. We can often lose the pleasure of reliance um, and, and what that might offer us, you know. Um, yes, Audrey Lord's great essay, The Power and the Uses of the Erotic, is one of the it's like a touchstone for me i my mind goes back and back to it and there there's a particular image in that essay where she talks about during world war ii they would get these packets of white margarine and 
um, and that with a little pellet of golden color and that like the work of sort of kneading that that packet so that the the color would suffuse, suffuse it. I mean, the actually what they like what margarine is what that dye might be is not it. It's the, like moving moving something malleable until and and getting the light throughout it. You know, um, like that's what I think. That's one of the ways I think. about going back to the erotic and the world of the sensual, the physical, like. Um, your physical response to what's actually around you, like figuring out what your body is actually feeling. Yeah. That's another move that is almost so, always so helpful. And right, we're seeing, oh my God, the intense dangers of political romanticism right now, you know? I mean, and but it's true from any part of the political spectrum, I think, you know, I there's a reason you're drawn to it, but also like, like, workable love of that kind as well, politically as well as romantic, yeah. Totally, and I think, uh, yeah, that actually, (laughs) there are so many things we could say and ask here, but I want to turn to that image that you're giving us of the the working the light into the margarine, Um, because one thing that, that came up for me as I was reading the book was how active the verbs of the novel are. Um, and the, the verbs often echo in really thematic ways. And one that stands out is churning. Um, churning is both the action for making butter um, and a way to describe desire, um, the way it works on and in Amanda in particular, right? It's a central word for her experience of the world. Butter is what initially provides her the public excuse um, uh, for her to return to Moody's store um, again and again. Uh, It provides her a livelihood um, that that she's secreting away um, from John, her husband. Uh, It bonds her to her magnificent cow, Miss Alice. Um, It gives her a public outlet for creativity with those stamps she makes uh, or marks the butterballs with. Um, And it's the thing that creates the final beautiful image in the novel, uh, which I don't want to spoil. I want people to kind of build up and just find that moment uh, so I don't have to read it. Um, You're so attentive to domestic routines and the work of them, um, uh, the physical labor of them, and it makes sense they match the intimacy of other pleasures. Um, I know uh, Lifting Belly, Gertrude Stein's poem is important to you. Your uh, uh, echoes of it and belly songs are, are really there. And Lifting Belly has this great line. It's one of the ones that gets repeated. It says, uh, quote, lifting belly must be both kind and strong, fire and linen, fierce and tender. Uh, And that's all there in butter, that domestic, um, uh, something domestic, something wild, something passionate, something mundane. At one moment in the novel, you write, quote, and this is Amanda speaking, I was forgetting the look of things for the feel of them. And that is a dangerous thing in this world. Uh, end quote. I didn't know if you could talk a bit about what this danger is for Amanda, and perhaps that's tying into this question about the erotic, the danger of the erotic. I don't know. Well, yeah. So, you know, so I'm a fat woman. I have big breasts. For, For a lot of years, I didn't wear a bra. And um, I, at one point, hair grew on my face and I didn't shave it. And one of the reasons I continued not to shave it, even though there was intense stigma around that, I mean, walking around with like this, was the re- 
ridiculously extreme reactions that that created and what and how it limited almost everything I could do. Like it was so hard to, you know, only, you know, radical economics collectives and and battered women's shelters would hire me, right? Like, because like, and that's, so that's like this really literal thing is that if, you know, the, the, the conventions of um, how to dress and, and how to maintain your appearance are treated as trivial, but if you deviate from them in really kind of minute degrees, you know, I mean, I didn't have to do anything, but just not, not cross a gender line to shave hair from my face and 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 doing that um completely defined my life so so and the moment that amanda is is talking about that she's kind of going feral you know she's not she's not paying attention to to trying to be respectable yeah. and yeah i mean so so that's one thing about it i wanted to say something else about well, the erotic. I mean, so I had an, a residency at the Malay colony, you know, Edna St. Vincent Malay's old estate, you know, so it was someone who famously burnt the candle at both ends, right? And, and I, um, I, I got some milk and a bowl and I churned, I, 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 I I made better from the milk while I was writing in a studio that had, it was an artist studio. So I pinned up the entire novel, like all my pages on, on the wall all around me. So I was, and it was an old barn too. Oh <laughs> so I was in this barn surrounded with the pages and I churned the butter and described, just described what happened with the milk. And, and, and truly, I mean, that's not sexual, right? But it is erotic. It's like a, a heightened experience of, of, and then, then I tasted it, you know? I mean, of, 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 and then you take it in and of, of, of noticing the physical world and noting it as if it's important. And then it, and then because I'm a novelist, I mean, because I'm a writer, it moves into language.
it's wonderful to think think back to the context of the early and mid nineties uh, in which uh, Martha arrived. And I'm wondering for you, um, what does Martha offer the world now or what world is it being kind of reissued into? I'm curious for you, 25 years on, um, what having this book again with such a beautiful cover, um, the, the, the cow and the woman being written out of text is just so appropriate. Um, yeah, wondering what, um, what Martha offers you in this new edition. You know, really, really a lot, really a lot. I'm, I'm so happy to say, I mean, one of the things that, that can be painful about being a small press author, especially a small press author who, who's writing in the context of a network of feminist bookstores and journals and presses that no longer exist. I mean, a few of them do. Um, but at one point, Northampton had two women's bookstores and you know, newspapers, that's all gone. Mm-hmm. And so, so having Martha Moody come out now um, again with, with small beer, um, you know, so, so Kelly Link and Gavin Grant, like wonderful writers and neighbors, and they have a bookstore, Book Moon, and, and, and they're, they, they did the work, I mean, in the pandemic, right, to, to, to bring it back out into the world and beautifully, I mean, this is, the favorite cover that I've ever had of the book. And I I just love it so much. I mean, that just, that that gives me so much life. And then um, the mail is going slower than it would have been at other times. Also because of the pandemic, people are sort of just now getting the book and they're, they're writing to me, you know, they're, I, my neighbor across the street, like, you know, so I was alone on Christmas, but on Christmas, um, um, she sent me a picture of of um, a beautiful young person stretched out on the couch, absorbed in Martha Moody. You know, which wasn't happening with that. And and um, I was alone New Year's Eve, and I was um, online and. Um, a, a substantia, substantia Jones, who's a fat um, photographer. She's she's done a lot of fat nudes. She's wonderful, and she she posted something about a friend of hers had just been intubated and um, from in COVID nineteen, and mm-hmm. she wanted everyone to talk about what they were doing instead of going out to parties and mm-hmm. risking spreading the virus. And you know, I said something about I was just by myself and I wasn't doing much. And it was, I was having, that was a little hard that night. And, and right under it, some post, well, Susan, just so you know, I just, someone I didn't know a stranger. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm curled up in the couch with Martha Moody, you know? Yeah. So the book, and right here, I mean, I'm getting to have this conversation with you because of my work and the connections that books can make, even if, if no one can be physically with each other, you can have profound connections. Um, and Martha Moody is helping me be in touch with other people in that big way. I, I can't even say how much it matters to me right now. 
Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful to hear. And it reminds me too of the, the experience of, you know, there, there's a, a betrayal in, in the book where, you know, Clara uh, ends up sending um, some of Amanda's stories into the world. And Amanda at first doesn't know what to feel about that, but seeing herself in print um, later, later in the novel, she, she thinks about it again and she writes, I wanted my words seen I wanted Martha to be in the vision of the world with her low slung belly swaying in the morning of a culture, Martha, the adamant vision. I just love that. And I feel like that's, that's that desire for connection. That's that desire to break isolation of, yeah, one's own kind of um, labor, vision, desire, um, and connecting with others. and, and I don't know how much time we'll have to kind of um, dig into uh, what, she, what she ends up feeling when she sees that on a big stage kind of represented um, and how, what a generalize, her generalize, or uh, her particular desires look like when they become generalized. Um, but hopefully that's for future readers to, to experience. I wanted to close by thinking about the work that you're doing now. Um, your last published novel, um, Spider in a Tree, focused on the 17th century and Jonathan Edwards. Um, you, this is not the first time you focused on historical figures, um, but the next book, I feel like I've found that the, the working title is perhaps Lamentation Culture. Is that right? Lamentation Hill. Lamentation Hill, pardon. Lamentation Hill. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and what, um, yeah, what the work of that historical fiction is doing for you? Well, it's inspired by the life of Jonathan Edwards was a central figure in my last novel, and it was inspired by the life of his wild grandmother, Elizabeth Tuttle. Um, And there's a great nonfiction book out about her now. So if people are interested in her, her life, it's, it's worth reading it. And it's also, um, so it's in in Connecticut, it's 17th century. And um, one of the things that I'm, 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 I'm really back to, to, to women's lives. And there's, I'm really interested in um, lampreys, um, the sea lampreys that, that, that's, um, you know, most of the time they, they, they live in the Connecticut and the tributary um, um, rivers. And I got to go in the water with, um, um, with some lampreys that were spawning a couple of years ago, like actually stand in the river while they were they were building their nest. They were picking their, oh. they tried to pick up my walk and say, oh my gosh, it was the best. It was like, oh, it, it's incredible. <laughs> and so like one of the things about lampreys are, well, there's so much, I mean, okay, Susan, keep it short because, but because, and I'm not, I haven't totally completely got this into fiction, but they, they, they stay in the bank um, for for most of the years of their lives, they're like, like little worms, and they're kind of passively feeding. And then there's just this one, or maybe two, but mostly it's one year where they suddenly get much bigger, and they 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 go to the ocean, and they 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 travel very far, and they um, they live by attaching themselves to living fish, and 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 they have these wild round mouths, and they 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 drink their blood or they turn the, and they don't, the fish don't always die, but 
it's not great for the fish. You know? the fish right. Also, I mean, when they want to rest, when they're swimming, they suckle stones and they they hold on to stones to keep them still. And that I and I had kind of a dream and I was like, that this suckling thing, that that's a really intense maternal image, mm-hmm. land right? Of course. And yeah. they're also like the maybe they're a candidate, you know, for for they're one of the oldest living vertebrates. And so there's sort of like nobody pays a lot of attention to them. They're like down, they're in the banks, you don't even know they're there, they're in the water, and they've lasted so long, and that seems really good for 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 one of my like kind of abiding concerns with this historical stuff is trying to find the um ways to retell the stories that um, my family has has been in this country for a long time but have white settlers and have so participated in you know a lot of the um injustices that have happened and that you know, it's sort of like, okay, so, so what, how do you, how do you retell those stories of history where you, you know, is it possible to, to both love this country and tell the truth about it? And is it possible to be a white person and, and love your culture and tell the truth about it? And, and the Lampreys sort of like, we're not the center of everything, but we, we survive, you know, I mean, is, I think, I don't know, I'm interested in that image settler culture and the myths and the realities um, of telling those stories and how do we kind of not make new heroes but instead make potent metaphors to be honest uh, uh, about that history, um, both the benefits of that history um, and the violence of that history. It feels like really um, vital work and I'm excited to see what comes uh, with Lamentation Hill. Susan, it's been wonderful to speak with you today. Um, Thank you so much for Martha Moody and the the breadth of your work. Um, And I am excited to uh, see how far this book travels in its new edition. Um, Do you have any readings coming up or anything like that? I do. Before I say that, I'm trying to do this really, but I just want to say, I mean, Forbes library, like yes. your connection here is through Forbes. And because I spent so much time as the writer in residence as well. I mean, like, like having that in community is also like hugely important to me um, yes. as a writer and as a person who lives here. So there's that. So I'm so glad that this is happening through Forbes. You know, it just, that just warms my heart so much. Um, Sally Belrose and I are going to be um, um, part of a, a lesbian literary, literary festival, but it, it's virtual. It's out of Gulfport, um, Florida, also a library. Um, at the end of February, February 26th, we're going to have a conversation with each other and, and a brief reading together. And anyone will be able to, well, find that, I think. Um, it's so, but it's lesbian. So that's, that's a context of that piece. And um, I just, um, there's a, a at Dickinson College, um, um, there's a fat studies class that is uh, using Martha Moody as a text. And I'm gonna be um, speaking to the class and then giving a reading for the whole um, campus in April, either April 18th, 19th or the 20th. So those are the upcoming readings I have. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I hope um, I hope perhaps we can find some links to the public events that we can post on the website. Um, but for now, thank you so much. Um, this has been great. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to learn more about Susan's work and the book, you can find links on our show page on the Forbes Library website. Thank you to Molly Moss, 
Heather Diaz, and the programming team at Forbes for your support, to the friends of Forbes for their continued support of programming like this, even in these distant times. Endless gratitude goes to Cameron McDonald for the beautiful music in this episode. You'll be able to find more of Cameron's work through a link on the site as well. Forbes Library stands on Nanatuck land, and in our presence here, I'd like to acknowledge our neighboring indigenous nations, the Nipmuc and Wampanoag to the east, the Mohegan and Pequot to the south, the Mohican to the west, and the Abenaki to the north. We'd also like to pay our respects to indigenous elders past and present of these communities and any others who may be here today. This is and always will be indigenous land, and we're grateful to the scholarship of historian Lisa Brooks, as well as Bixie Utzler and Ian Miller, upon whose research this acknowledgement draws. Please join me next time for a conversation with Andrea Hairston about her latest book, Master of Poisons. Take care. <laughs>